Hi, and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations about issues emanating from psychiatry that impact society, as well as discuss societal issues that have potential implications for mental health and emotional well-being. My guests include thought leaders from both within the discipline of psychiatry and beyond. Beyond Madness is brought to you in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time. On the 28th of July, 2022, an incident took place that beggared belief. The gang rape of eight women at an abandoned mine to the west of Johannesburg. They were young women who were shooting a music video. The film crew were robbed of equipment, money and cell phones. At first, I wasn't sure if I could believe what I was reading. Alas, it was true. And I found myself caught up in the horror of their experience, although I had no direct connection to it. I still think about it from time to time, and the criminal case is ongoing, but not for rape. Those charges were withdrawn against the 14 alleged rapists due to insufficient evidence. They will continue to be prosecuted for the contravention of the Immigration Act, as they were all foreign nationals, as will no doubt those young women continue to process and cope with what took place. So I decided to to open with the incident in question because I wanted to provide a real-life graphic depiction of the type of trauma potentially associated with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, but also to highlight the threat to women in South Africa related to gender-based violence and sexual assault and specifically issues within the South African Police Services and National Prosecuting Authority. So on today's episode, entitled Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, Crime, Trauma, Justice, and Healing, I'd like to welcome Soraya Sidat and Gerard Labaskachny. Neither is a stranger to the podcast, but just to remind our audience, Soraya is a distinguished professor of psychiatry and executive head of the Department of Psychiatry at Stellenbosch University, and she holds the South African Research Chair in Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder from the Department of Science and Technology and National Research Foundation. Gerard holds two master's degrees, one in clinical psychology and the other in criminology, as well as having a degree in law, an LLB, and a PhD in psychology. For 14 years, he headed up the South African Police Service's specialized investigative psychology section and was the South African Police Service's chief profiler. Currently, he is a director of a company, LNS Threat Management, which specializes in threat assessment. In addition, he holds various honorary academic positions at both the University of the Witwatersrand and UNISA. And in 2021, he published the book, The Profiler Diaries from the Case Files of a Police Psychologist. So, Soraya and Gerard, welcome and, and, and thank you so much for, for joining me. Gerard, I'm actually going to start out with you because obviously I've, I've, I've described an incident and the, the question that came to mind at the time. And obviously I have you in front of me now as, as, as somebody who specializes in threat assessment. What about threat assessment under the circumstances? within the context of that. And here I'm not wanting to apportion blame or liability. I'm just mm. looking at the concept of threat assessment, and I'm looking at that context. Well, and I, I don't know if this is exactly what you're asking for, but, I mean, I'm, I, I've known about this case, you know, I think as, as long as everybody else has when they heard it in the media. Yes. My first questions were, you know, as a production company, <laughs> if you're going to go out to a mine dump and have a production, where was your risk assessment? Right. You know, you should have had – It's I, so me personally, I mean, yes, we, we blame obviously those men that came out and, and raped those women. Sure. 
Those are the perpetrators. But I think if you as an employer, let's look at it from that point of view. You, the production company, was the employer of those ladies yes. to come there and provide a particular service to whatever you're doing. Yes. And um, you should obviously make sure there's a secure and safe environment for those people. And who would think going to a mine dump is a safe place to take a bunch of women and a lot of valuable equipment and you don't have any at least any security if you did, if you deem that's a good place to go and actually have your so i think from a risk assessment point of view that company should be held legally if anything civilly liable yeah. um for what happened um yes. on that particular day so that was something that was particularly troubling to me when i when i'd read the the story and and, and obviously yeah I don't know the specifics. We don't know the specifics. And I think one of the issues here is, is, and, and it'll come up a little bit later, the issue of the rape victim and the issue of blame. And I think that is something. And, and so that's why I'm very specific. I'm not apportioning blame. Mm. I'm just looking at the circumstances because for me, this was a devastating event. And could it have been prevented? Mm. Could it have been mitigated? Because I think that is obviously something that, that, that comes to mind. But, you know, you've, you've, you've worked with serial killers. Uh, some of whom might well have uh, committed sexual assault. And I'm trying to get into the head, the mindset of the perpetrator under these circumstances. I mean, what goes on? What gives? Is this just a crime of opportunity? What is this all about? You know, I'd have to say that, I mean, I doubt these offenders would have known that this team was going to be pitching up on that day. Yeah. So I, I think it was for them, uh, an opportunistic crime. I don't think that means that they've never ever thought about rape people or probably have raped people before. I don't think rape is a crime you ever do just once right. and you try it out and you go, oh, that was not for me. I'll yes. move on to something else. Right. I think it comes with that mindset, that power control issues, dominance over your people, etc. So and as, as I understand, these were illegal miners who operated in the area. So you already have people who are involved in a criminal underworld Right. Um, I mean, if you ever see any documentaries about that, it's a whole world on its own, yes. the sort of Zama-Zama phenomenon. So, you know, they would have to be people that are already – this is in their frame of reference right. because, as I said, if you come across a bunch of women, do you, who normally just thinks, oh, I'm going to rape a woman when I see them? Mm. So there must have been that already underlying idea that this is something it's okay to do. Yes. And, wow, here today is a fantastic opportunity. We can rob and rape. Right. So – Soraya, we've kind of set the scene in terms of an event. We've looked at some of the issues around that, which we might well come back to. But obviously the issue of trauma and the issue of stress. So I want to come to the definition of, of, of either of those terms because I think that they're frequently used and I think we always need to be very clear what we're talking about when we, when we use those words. I mean, I've been recently reading Gabo Mate's book, The Myth of Normal. It's got a subtitle as well. And I, I liked the way in which he conceptualizes trauma. And I've mentioned it on a previous podcast before. The meaning being a wound, which comes from the, the Greek derivation of the word. And in this instance, we're talking about a psychic wound. But, but your thoughts on, 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 on the meaning of trauma and what is it actually? I think the uh, distinction between uh, trauma and stress is, is a contentious one. But if right. we look at psychiatric nosology and the way in which uh, trauma and traumatic events are defined um, in our nomenclature, so the DSM-5 Five. specifically, um, traumatic events are really considered to be life-threatening events, mm. either directly experienced or witnessed. Um, whereas um, stressful events tend to be uh, 
non-life-threatening events and everyday occurrences, so right. more or less sort of um, life stresses that individuals experience um, on an ongoing basis. Not to say that traumatic events cannot be continuous and ongoing uh, experiences either. And sometimes, um, you know, these sort of definitions are blurred because often in the context of trauma, uh, an individual will experience, um, you know, everyday stresses and, and a life-threatening traumatic event um, does put an individual at risk of um, other life stresses, right. especially sort of responding to life stresses um, occasionally in a, in a way that is, you know, maladaptive. Right. So I, I, I've always kind of thought about trauma as something that is experienced in response to a catastrophic event. So the abnormal, the unusual. Um, but in fact, coming back to Mate, he says, no, no, no. He says he feels trauma is far more pervasive and someone who hasn't experienced trauma is something of an outlier. So I kind of questioned that. But then I came across the World Health Organization's World Mental Health Surveys where they state that 70% of global population of the global population report exposure to at least one traumatic event, which kind of suggests that it's far more pervasive and, 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 and frequent than I would have imagined. But I'd always thought of it as something which is a high impact stressor. It overwhelms the individual's ability to cope and it disrupts their relationship with self and others. So that's how I'm thinking of, of, of trauma. Am I, am I maybe, um, diminishing other forms of, 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 of what could be conceived as trauma? Is it, is it a subjective experience or does it have to be objectively something that is high impact? Well, interestingly, to go back to the DSM-5, the objective um, experience of trauma um, has been omitted. Um, so the subjective response to a traumatic event has been omitted as a necessary criterion for the diagnosis of post-traumatic right. stress disorder in DSM-5. Um, but I, I do agree with you that, um, you know, traumatic events typically are fairly catastrophic um, events um, that are high-impact events. Yes. Um, and they overwhelm the capacity of an individual, either at the time or sometime into the future, in terms of, you know, um, adaptively responding to the um, experience. And I think, you know, at a biological level, we can think about a traumatic event as causing a major disruption in biological systems, especially those systems that mediate or uh, are um, implicit in the stress response. Um, so they overwhelm the capacity of an individual to respond either at the time or sometime into the future. So you see, for me, it's, 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 it's just a concern that we have a term that's overused. And I think that if we overuse something, we tend to diminish it. And it's always a concern that then we lose the, the, the individuals who may really require um, higher levels of intervention and, and care. So I think it's always very important to understand what we mean when we talk about a trauma. And I suppose it's, it's, it's potentially on a, on a spectrum uh, of, of experience and consequence. So one is always looking at it with, within the context of the individual without necessarily saying it doesn't meet the definition of a high-impact stressor or high-impact event, and therefore this can't be PTSD. 
That's how. I w- yes, I would concur with that. Yeah. So I think it's it's very much context specific. And again, you know, this issue of the use of the word stress. I mean, you know, changing and challenging circumstances tend to cause stress. And I mean. A lot of people, you know, find contemporary society very stressful. There's a lot of stress, but obviously trauma is such a stress. So the link between trauma and stress, I think, is, is, is very clear, which then kind of brings me to, you've mentioned the DSM-5. Apparently it's, we've got a text revision now. So the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders and this whole issue of trauma and stress-related disorders. So for me, the, the, the kind of big two are acute stress disorder, but obviously post-traumatic stress disorder. Do you want to – because for, for me, acute stress disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder are kind of on a continuum in terms of time. So acute stress disorder within the first 30 days after an event, post-traumatic stress disorder after 30 days, but they seem broadly similar. Do you, do, do you want to just maybe comment on the symptoms – how they are characterized in terms of, of, of what constitutes these disorders? Um, so they are similar, and um, I think the main distinction relates to the timing in relation to the traumatic um, experience. Um, so historically, it has always been thought that um, acute stress disorder uh, would be um, important to uh, determine um, in an individual, to, so to assess an individual soon after trauma, to determine whether they do in fact um, have the sort of dysfunctional response that would meet criteria for acute stress disorder, because that might predict the persistence of symptoms and the development of post-traumatic stress disorder. But what um, the data have shown is that acute stress disorder is, in fact, not a very good predictor of um, the persistence of symptoms. Um, So, um, you know, that is important to bear in mind. I think also um, historically, which has not sort of borne fruit, was that um, it was thought that acute stress disorder was really characterized by a dominance of dissociative phenomena. Right. Um, you know, depersonalization, derealization, um, et cetera, um, in, in the immediate aftermath of the event. Right. Um, and, you know, those were sort of the dominant symptoms. But um, that, as I said, has really sort of not borne out. What we do know is that the, there is um, significant overlap in right. the presentation of acute stress disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. So essentially, acute stress disorder is a diagnosis that can be made um, in the immediate aftermath within sort of three days of the traumatic event up to a month. Um, and if an individual continues to have symptoms or develop symptoms after one month yeah. um, that meet a clinical threshold, then a diagnosis of PTSD can be made. Right. So if one looks at the symptoms, so obviously, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's the one situation in psychiatry where we do have a cause and a consequence. We can say, well, that happened, this has arisen, because psychiatry, unfortunately, in terms of etiology is often highly problematic. But I think in terms of PTSD or acute stress disorder, we certainly can say, yes, there was an event, here's a consequence. And, and, and just to, to be clear that, that in terms of the development of PTSD, it's a, it's a small percentage you would actually move on to develop these disorders after such an event. But if one looks at the symptomatology, how would you characterize it, uh, Soraya, in terms of what would the primary symptoms be, let's just say, of post-traumatic stress disorder, accepting that one can manifest similar in acute stress disorder? Yeah, 
So typically individuals will have um, different sort of clusters of symptoms. We can categorize them as sort of occurring in uh, buckets or, you know, clusters. So intrusive symptoms are very common. Right. Uh, they relate to intrusive memories um, and thoughts of the um, experience, um, vivid dreams, including nightmares, uh, flashbacks of the event, um, and Together with these sorts of um, symptoms, individual often will avoid yes. uh, reminders of the traumatic event. Um, they will um, avoid uh, places and people uh, that trigger memories of the event. Um, they will experience feelings of detachment and social withdrawal. Mm. Um, they may have depressed mood, and you know sometimes that makes the uh, distinction between uh, post-traumatic stress and um, mood dysregulation, major depressive disorder, for example, um, complicated. Yes. Um, and in addition, um, you know, individuals will have um, sort of cognitive alterations, often sort of distortions in the way they sort of think about the event and, and recall and replay the event. Um, and we'll also have, um, you know, an elevated sort of physiological response that mm. we sort of typically um, characterize in terms of the hypervigilance yes. um, and the exaggerated startle being very jumpy yeah. um, at reminders um, of the event or any um, stimuli that may uh, be paired um, by the individual with that horrible experience. Right. And I think that the other issue, of course, is that the issue of dissociation is quite uh, important in terms of saying it either occurs with or without. And you mentioned earlier depersonalization. So here we're talking about an altered sense of self in a way and derealization where your relationship to the environment is also kind of disturbed and experienced in a, in a way that is that is not normal. So you're kind of disconnected in a sense. So these dissociative phenomena. So I think that why it was important for me to really go through this is is because, you know, again, the term PTSD is used very loosely. Got PTSD, features of PTSD. And I think what's very important is that it's a clinical diagnosis and they're very specific clinical features. And I think obviously that's what we want to that's what we want to be clear in terms of when we use that term, that's what we're talking about. So having defined PTSD and, and stress-related disorders with, with, with ASD, I wanted to move on to, to prevalence, but I wanted to bring Gerard in here because, Gerard, you obviously have worked with victims of crime in, in, in supporting and, and being involved with. I mean, what's your experience of, of, of PTSD as we've described it um, amongst folk that you have worked with? You know, I was recently interviewing about eight ladies who was the victim of a guy who was uh, essentially a serial rapist. And I mean, these ladies were raped. Not the same eight we're talking about. This is different. Yeah, different, different. Right. Yeah. Individual periods in time, etc. And these are anything from nine years ago to, to 15 years ago. And I was interviewing them all over the past three weeks. And they all still have very strong sort of, I just say trauma symptoms from what happened. You right. know, that, that it, it impacts on their relationships. It impacts, of course, their sex lives. They still have bad dreams about what happened. Um, you know, if they get into a situation where they don't feel comfortable and safe around a male person, they start to have the sort of bodily kind of reactions. So, you know, and I think there's certain types of trauma are in a way maybe easier to get over, if I can put it very simplistically. I yeah. think even if you're in a robbery, 
it's almost like maybe you can compartmentalize it. But if you have, for example, if you're the victim of a sexual sex crime, right. you know, you you know, you have sex as part of most normal adults consenting relationships. Yes. And they say, you know, when I'm with my partner, my husband, you know, it, I don't feel connected. I feel like I'm, this is happening to me again. So I think it's one of those types of crimes where if we have trauma as a result thereof, which you prob- probably would have some level of trauma. Right. It relives at various phases in your life. Yes. When you start a new relationship, you wonder how I'm, how's it going to be with this person? If, mm-hmm. do I tell him about what happened to me? Do I don't tell him about what happened to me? Um, what will the first sexual experience be like? How will I react? So I think yes. it's, it relives itself at various points in time. And I think that's for me with sexual crime or sexual trauma. Um, it's, it's so difficult to just in a way, to put it very simplistically, put it behind you. Then I think because as you're saying, you know, human sexuality, I mean, that's part of what we, what we are. Mm. That's who we are. And so therefore, this may well recur. But I'm just curious, of these women that you interviewed, how many had ever been, because I mean, what you're describing is that they've got ongoing symptoms of what would potentially be Mm. PTSD. How many had ever been diagnosed? How many had received treatment? Because that speaks to something else that I'm going to get to as we go into prevalence and, Mm. and, and looking at consequences. I think out of all these, I think one had ever gone for professional help. Most of them because they don't feel they have access. They come from very sort of impoverished communities and they're saying, where can I go? Uh, you know, and I would say the general things, you know, perhaps a local clinic that should be able to offer these services. One is near Harankua. So there's the, you know, Mudunsa, the old Mudunsa, yes. I think might have an outreach program. You know, those aren't the best, but that's what's available. That's what's available to you. But, you know, most of these people could not afford to go see psychologists or psychiatrists, unfortunately. So we have women who've been violated, who live with the consequences and are not able to access care or maybe don't even consider that it's an option. And I would say struggle with the consequences, you know, because it it just pops up in so many aspects of their lives. Right. So, Rhea, I came across in November 2021, you gave the Alan J. Flisher Memorial Lecture. And I think the the title of that lecture, and I'm not going to hold you to giving me an account of that lecture because I know you give a lot of lectures, but it was scars that run deep, pervasive and pathogenic impact of trauma and PTSD. And I mean, that title really struck me. And I'm listening to what Gerard is saying now, and I'm coming to the title of your, of your lecture. Um, profound, actually. And just the essence of, 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 the, of the title. What was the essence of your lecture, actually, if you can remember? Um, I, I do remember the... The essence of that lecture was, you know, around the pervasive impact of traumatic experiences during childhood um, and uh, the substantial health challenges that individuals exposed to childhood um, abuse and other forms of maltreatment uh, are at risk of um, as they, you know, develop into adolescence and adulthood. Um, so, you know, the lifespan impact of uh, traumatic experiences early in life right. um, on the, you know, neurodevelopmental trajectories um, right. of people. And, um, you know, there, there is very robust evidence uh, internationally, and this comes from many different contexts, showing um, a very sort of clear association between early childhood abuse and a number of physical and mental health outcomes. Um, but the pathogenic um, aspects um, of that talk that I delved into um, were around, uh, you know, the, 
the converging influences of biology and environment, right. uh, genetic and epigenetic, um, and other social determinants um, that you know come into play um, when someone who is exposed to childhood uh, maltreatment. Um, you know, experiences uh, distress and maladjustment. So, um, you know, what is it that really um, uh, is toxic um, and results in, you know, what are the factors that result in that person developing psychiatric and medical uh, morbidity? Well, certainly I think that the issue of adverse childhood experiences is becoming increasingly prominent as we begin to kind of look at consequences later in life and in adult life, including somatization. A lot of the somatic disorders have their origins in in, in some or other form of, of trauma. But I wanted to just touch on, but thanks for just clarifying that, because I think it's very important. And I, as I say, I, I come back to the title, Scars That Run Deep. And I think for me, that's 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 really a powerful image in, in my mind as I, as, I, as I read those words. But just looking at prevalence, how common is post-traumatic stress disorder? And I know, Saraya, you were a co-author on, on an article, National and Regional Prevalence of Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder in Sub-Saharan Africa. It was a systematic review and, and, and meta-analysis. And in conflicts, now you differentiated in areas where there was conflict, as in war or civil disruption, I would imagine, or where there wasn't. And certainly in conflict, unexposed regions, the sort of prevalence of probable PTSD was 8%. And that's just to put it in context, the worldwide figure is about 4%. So certainly elevated. And when you moved into conflict-exposed regions, you suddenly got up to 30%. So certainly conflict seems to be a major driver in terms of probable PTSD. But even where there is no conflict, there is certainly an overrepresentation of 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 PTSD as a as a diagnostic entity and what was interesting is that there was no difference significant difference certainly between men and women but when we get into sub-saharan africa issues of intimate partner violence and non-partner sexual violence I mean, those are very powerful mediators. Um, and this whole issue of violence in sub-Saharan Africa, and we're going to get into South Africa in terms of some of the data. But just before I ask you to, to comment, I came across a 1993 study, Americans, called the National Women's Study. And what they said there, one-third of rape victims develop PTSD sometimes during their lifetime. And rape victims were 6.2 times more likely to develop PTSD than women who had never been victims of crime. So there is no question that sexual violence seems to have a very, understandably, um, very specific implications for the victim. But what is it about sub-Saharan Africa and sexual violence and intimate partner violence? I I don't know that you have an explanation for me, but it's very striking. And in terms of the PTSD rates that are prevalent in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Saraya, your, your comments, because obviously you pooled all that data together and you were looking at it. What sense did you make of it? So, you know, I think those data are very striking, but unsurprising because, um, you know, we know that uh, our continent um, is, a, is a continent that is characterized by violence, in particular sort of childhood um, exposure to violence and intimate partner violence. In South Africa, um, we have um, the highest rate of intimate partner violence globally. 
Um, and, you know, I think there are many sort of social political factors that uh, contribute to the much higher rates of um, violence and these two specific forms of interpersonal uh, violence on the African continent. Um, um, so, you know, I think it is a sort of very complex um, issue. Um, I want to highlight that um, the finding of sort of no sex difference is surprising um, on the African continent because most studies um, comparing um, the rates of PTSD by gender have shown that, you know, women have at least a twofold higher risk yes. of PTSD. Yeah. Um, I think what you pointed out, which is really important to bear in mind, and, you know, I kind of circled back to the to the case study, the real case study yes. that you presented at the outset, yes. that we need to remember that, you know, while the rate of PTSD um, in the general population is around 4 to 6%, mm. uh, when um, an individual, a man or woman, um, is exposed to rape, yes. uh, you know, rape becomes highly pathogenic um, as an experience for PTSD. And so, um, as you mentioned, you know, about 40% yeah. of uh, women uh, who are raped go on to develop PTSD. And th that statistic actually mirrors data from South Africa. Okay. Um, and so I think we need to bear that in mind, that we need to have a very high index of suspicion as clinicians, as uh, people, you know, working with um, rape survivors that um, the risk of developing PTSD is, is much higher than other forms of interpersonal violence. Absolutely. And I think I'm just going to put a few numbers to that because I came across the stats from 2019-2020. So 42,289 reported rapes, 7,749 sexual assaults. So let's put that together. That's about 50,000 women who've been violated sexually. Now, to just compound that, one in nine is reported, which means eight out of nine are not reported. So now I'm extrapolating that 50,000 and saying, well, there's many times more potential victims. Then I put into the mix this issue that one-third of rape victims will develop PTSD sometime during their lifetime. And you start to kind of do the math on that number. And it's staggering, actually, because this is happening annually. This is not like a one-off event, and so that's the number. And, you know, once you start to get your head around that, or you, or maybe you struggle to get your head around that, because that's a lot of people, women, walking around, not exclusively women, because it does, you know, sexual violence can happen to men as well, but it's predominantly women. And you're thinking, wow, where are all these people? What is going on with them? And how many of them who suffer are not receiving any intervention? And what are the consequences of this chronically unaddressed trauma that they've, that they've experienced? So, I mean, you know, when I start to look at the numbers and I start to do the maths, I'm taken aback. So, Sarah, I don't know what your thoughts are there, but I'm, I'm actually just sort of looking at numbers and saying, wow. You know, you know, I think that the data are staggering and it is hugely concerning um, that, um, you know, we, we have a situation and, and a situation in South Africa that 
um, doesn't seem to have shifted much over time um, where, you know, the reporting of rapes um, is a major challenge. Um, Early intervention is a major challenge. Um, And, you know, we think about PTSD, but there's so many other mental health sequelae as well as physical health sequelae. Our country, you know, um, HIV um, right. And so, risk of HIV following rape is um, is is a major concern, especially if a woman does not report the rape. Um, you know, I kind of wonder how many individuals there are, um, you know, who have become infected post rape, mm. who are unaware um, that they have been infected. So. Um, it, it is very, very concerning. Um, and I think it also speaks to the support that women who do report rape receive because often that is um, perceived as sort of unsatisfactory, stigmatizing. Yes. Um, there's uh, often sort of lack of follow-up, follow-through on care. Um, so I think there are many challenges uh, that we face. At the same time, I think it's, you know, very positive that in our country we do have these rape care centres that um, are uh, national rape centres that do provide a, you know, a one-stop shop, um, if you will, to, um, you know, women and men who have been, and children, adolescents who have been sexually assaulted. I think what is really daunting for the victim is moving it through the system. And I'm going to flip to Gerard there because the other statistic, 14% of perpetrators of rape are convicted in South Africa, which means that 86% are not. And so how many potential rapists are there in our midst who have not been convicted, found guilty? Maybe there could be some false accusations. I don't know. But the truth of the matter is a 14%. And I think, Soraya, the, the issue of, of, of there being a one-stop shop, which is great because I think the people who, you know, uh, staff those centers, I think really know their stuff and they get, you know, very involved with the, with the victims. But in terms of individuals that I've encountered, it's the thought of then going through the legal process where it's like you're going to have to go to court. Everything is going to be made public. You are going to have to defend yourself, actually, because the perpetrator is innocent until proven guilty. So you're actually going to relive the entire situation and how many people, women, are specifically comfortable to do that. And I think just before I bring you in, Gerald, just coming back to that national women's study from 1993 in America, issues for victims, blame, the family or non-family finding out, Identity being revealed by the media, and guess what? I think with the Krugersdorp situation, that's exactly mm-hmm. what did happen. Yeah. Never mind the fact that there was theft of a cell phone by one of the SAPS members of one of the victims. Pregnancy, sexually transmitted diseases, and, of course, stigma. So those are some of the issues for, for, for women from that national women's study. But your comments on this mm-hmm. issue of perpetrators and 14% being found. Well, we did yeah. – I say we. It was a, a huge bunch of us, mainly from the Medical Research Council, did a nationally representative study of rape attrition. So for the moment a case is opened, right. where does it fall out or where does it con- end up? Um, this was a nationally representative sample. And from this study – 
essentially now we're only talking about the cases that, that actually made it to the police station to be reported now. Right. Okay. So as we know, I think I heard the last stats were like one in 20 only get reported. No? Okay. So I've got one in nine. That's on the low side. Um, so in this particular study, um, 57% of the cases an arrest was made. Okay. All right. Out of the total sample, um, 34% were prosecuted. Right. So about a third of cases brought to the police's attention get prosecuted. Um, and 8.6% of all cases brought to the police's attention end up with a conviction. Okay. So I've got 14%, which is on the high side. So, so this, this particular study. So it, it's, it's, it's not great. So you know that there's less than a 10% chance that if I go to the cops, that I'll end up with a conviction, even if they identify the person. Right. Um, and the majority of these cases fall out essentially in the police investigation phase that they either don't find someone or et cetera. So, one of the biggest areas of problem is actually the policing part of it. And I suppose that's what I wanted to highlight is the fact that for the victim, that kind of data, whether they know the actual numbers, but intuitively they're looking at a situation and saying, what is the likelihood? What are the chances? So I know that in the title of the podcast today, I put in the word justice, mm. but I put it there specifically because I don't know that there is justice. And I think the fact that there isn't justice for the vast majority of victims creates a situation where actually following through is incredibly difficult at the end of the day. And so for me, you know, we've got policies in place, we have laws, we have institutions, but to what end? Mm. Because ultimately when you have numbers like that, how is all of that serving the victim? And, and I also want to point out, you know, we, we who live in the suburbs, we are only now, I say now in the past year or two, feeling like, oh, this policing is terrible and we're not safe. I can tell you people living in impoverished circumstances for decades have not felt that there's policing for them. Yes. Um, so that, you know, people who get raped, who are staying in formal settlements, they don't think there's ever going to be justice. That's probably – and also why they don't go report most of the time. Right. So I think, you know, there's also – the rest of us are only catching up now at realizing actually that there is not actually policing injustice in our country anymore. And in the next 10 years, I can almost guarantee you it's going to be, there's going to be nothing. So, you know, for the, and that the large, large majority of our country are living in, in not so great circumstances. So they've known for years that there's no justice. So yeah. reporting these things to the police is, is very often a pointless exercise. You know, it's, 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 it's profoundly disturbing actually having these conversations, but there's a reason why I want to have this conversation because I think it's important that we do have this conversation because we've got to put it out there. But, you know, Soraya, coming back now to the issue of treatment, and I think one of the issues is the so-called treatment gap. Um, and I think that for mental, orders, mental disorders generally, there's a massive treatment gap in low-income countries. Your comments on that because I think that, you know, we've got high prevalence, Low access to care, because that's really, if you just want to elaborate a little bit on the treatment gap, and let's talk about PTSD specifically in terms of treatment. So we don't have good data in South Africa on the treatment gap for PTSD, but we know that uh, the treatment gap in the public health sector for uh, mental disorders generally is around 90% in the country. So let's just repeat that, 90%. So what that means is 90% of people who have a need will not have that need met. Yes. Yeah. And that's an astounding. <laughs> it is. That's why I've kind of. That's why I've kind of emphasised it again. I mean, it's 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 just incredible, actually, when you think about it. So sorry, I've jumped in there because it's just you know had to emphasise it. Carry on, Soraya. And with PTSD 
specifically, you know, as you've highlighted some of the um, barriers yes. to accessing care, especially among uh, women and men who've experienced um, sexual assault um, and rape in particular, um, it is plausible that the treatment gap is even wider right. uh, than um, other common mental disorders, uh, such as uh, depression right. and other anxiety conditions. Yes. Um, and so, you know, the question is, you know, how do we actually get um, people who need um, the care for a post-traumatic stress disorder to access treatment? And I think this is, um, you know, a, a, a big challenge and it requires a multi-pronged approach because yeah. I think, you know, it starts with um, universal measures where we raise awareness about post-traumatic stress disorder, about its uh, negative impacts um, on the body and brain yes. uh, for the person who has experienced this terrible traumatic event, um, and that we, um, you know, we we make it easier for people to access our services, especially in the in the public health sector. Yeah. And you know, that will start with accessing um, your closest primary care clinic. Um, and then, you know, it does require education of health professionals because I think uh, many um, medical professionals and other, you know, paraprofessionals who see um, these individuals, um, you know, as the sort of first point of contact um, have not really received the training mm-hmm. to provide the supportive measures and to um, to uh, inquire and assess um, individuals, inquire yes. about and assess individuals who've been exposed, um, you know, to a traumatic event in that sort of immediate um, aftermath. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, um, we think about doctors, it really requires um, education um, early on at medical school uh, teaching medical students um, and giving them exposure to, um, you know, women who have been raped and, and giving them the skills, imparting the skills to um, assess, to screen, to um, to manage, um, uh, you know, a person who uh, is recently traumatized. And I think that's really the issue is, 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 is putting, and that's why I say I think this conversation is very important because we're putting it on the table and we're saying there are very specific sensitivities and skills that are potentially required in order to enable a victim to come forward, to be appropriately understood, processed, moved through the system and walked through the system. Because I think we're dealing with people who've been traumatized, they're vulnerable, and so there needs to be an extra uh, awareness of that in order to walk them through the system to get them to the point where they might be in a better position to say, I'm going to follow through in terms of prosecution of the individual who violated me. So just looking at PTSD generally, I mean, in terms of treatment, if we take a biopsychosocial approach, I mean, from a pharmacological point of view, um, the kind of standard interventions would involve use of various antidepressant agents or um, anxiety-relieving agents or, or, or medications to help one sleep. Soraya, you're your comments in, in, in that sense? Uh, yes. So uh, with regards to medication treatments, the first-line interventions are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and right. the 
serotonin nor epinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Yeah. Uh, there are, in fact, only two medications that um, have FDA uh, indications for PTSD, and this may be surprising. So to, FDA, just, just um, to jump in, FDA is the American Regulatory Authority, Federal Drug Administration. Sorry, carry on, Soraya. Yes, the Food and Drug Administration. Food and Drug Administration, that's it. Yes, so um, fluoxetine um, is not um, registered oh. for traumatic stress disorder, but it is um, certainly in the Western Cape, I think, the most widely available um, SSRI and, you know, the oldest SSRI that we have yes. available. So the two medications that are FDA um, registered or indicated for post-traumatic stress disorder are sertraline and paroxetine. Right. Um, and all other medications that we use, antidepressants as well as, um, you know, other um, anti-anxiety agents and mood right. stabilizers are used off-label. Right. Um, most treatment guidelines will recommend um, psychotherapy as a first-line intervention. And yes. I think, you know, this poses a challenge, as you know. Uh, I was going to say, if you, can, if you can access it. <laughs> yes, if you can access it. So I think, you know, there is a human resource challenge. We have few clinical yeah. psychologists, um, in uh, relatively few in the public health sector um, in terms of uh, – you know, psychologists to um, population ratio. And uh, we need to bear in mind that um, there are often sort of long waits for our patients to see a clinical psychologist to receive um, some trauma-focused intervention right. uh, because trauma-focused interventions actually have the best evidence right. for uh, efficacy in post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and so, you know, um, it's often sort of the um, the um, you know anxiety that uh, a psychiatrist or other uh, medical practitioner has about starting treatment as soon as possible and resorting to a medication uh, prescription for a patient. Um, and medications as, and trauma focused interventions are both very effective. Hmm. So, so I mean. I know- I know sort of in, in, in my exposure, a good night's sleep is always very important. And certainly if you've got those intrusive nightmares that keep waking you up, obviously the hypnotics, those things that help you sleep and obviously the anxiety that, that goes with it. So certainly there's a pharmacological possibility in terms of treatment, psychotherapy, if you can access it, very important. But this issue of memory which I think is, is, is really quite an important central concept in post-traumatic stress disorder, the traumatic memory, how to shift it and how to prevent it consolidating. Is there anything that's kind of cutting edge or, or, or developing around what one can do about those memories beyond, you know, the SSRIs, hypnotics, anxiolytics, and, 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 and what have you? Your thoughts on that, uh, Soraya? Uh, well, yes, there is. Um, you know, many of the trauma-focused interventions are being um, investigated. So there's more sort of a, of a deeper dive into um, investigating the mechanisms um, by which these trauma-focused interventions work on fear and memory extinction in post-traumatic stress disorder. But there are a number of other newer interventions. Um, uh, for example, you know, virtual reality exposure, uh, therapy and investigating its effects on fear and memory extinction. And then um, newer sort of pharmacotherapies, a lot of interest in 
the psychedelics. Yes, I was going to ask you about MDMA, good old uh, ecstasy, as one of them, for example. Yes, and so uh, MDMA um, has uh, multiple sort of mechanisms of action or is thought to have um, multiple mechanisms of action in PTSD. Um, and, you know, the benefits in PTSD, which have been shown because there have been uh, a few trials and um, it is very likely that MDMA will be the first um, psychedelic compound registered by the FDA. Right. Because it, it has received sort of breakthrough therapy status to be fast-tracked through clinical trials but it is very likely that it will soon receive uh, approval right. um, for PTSD. And one of its mechanisms of action is thought to be sort of fear extinction and its um, its effects on sort of synaptogenesis and synaptic plasticity yes. in the brain um, and how that may sort of make memories um, malleable right. um, in, a, in a more beneficial way. So I think there's a, there's a, a lot of excitement yes. and traction in trying to understand better yeah. um, how these um, drugs and non-drug therapies exert their effects on uh, fear and fear extinction. So just to be clear, MDMA is methylene dioxymethamphetamine, just in case you wondered what the abbreviation stood for. But obviously the use of psychedelics is with accompanying psychotherapy in a safe setting. So I think there are terms and conditions. T's and C's apply in terms of you know utilization. But it's interesting for me how psychiatry is moving from illicit substance to therapeutic substance uh, <laughs> over time, and it, it keeps coming up again and again. But I want to get into the social side of things because uh, we're biopsychosocial. And, and obviously, I went to a government website looking at what the South African police services provide in terms of victim support. And I want to bring you in, Gerard, because obviously support groups, communities, networks, because I, I think in the immediate aftermath, you know, we're talking now pharmacotherapy, psychotherapy, but in the immediate aftermath, it's that social the, 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 the network of, of, of concerned people around you who you can trust. But when mm. I went to the government website looking at the SAP, South African Police Services, it says, in a case of domestic violence or sexual assault, the South African Police Service will help you find medical attention, shelter, victim counseling, and they give a whole range of, of, of organizations. To what extent does that really apply? And, you know, I, it may vary from police station to police mm. station. Yeah, I think it's going to vary greatly. So you might get a police station where all three of those are you have access to, and it's probably not going to be the police. It'll be NGOs. Right. So I couldn't say it's actually the police giving it to you. I just think it's going to vary greatly, and I think most people are not going to have access to that. And but I think for me that's what's important is that, as we heard, you know, how, how many psychiatrists are there? How many psychologists are there? I think the Northern Cape is like two yeah, psychiatrists. So we have to move away from thinking that that's going to be a way of dealing with people. We have to look at more at who's there. Do you know, do we need to train people? It's not the ideal, but you know, it's better than nothing maybe. Yes. To, to be able to, to provide people that supportive environment context, um, whether it's social workers that are more widely available to teaching religious duomenes, pastors, preachers to somebody, because we are not going to ever be able to reach that level of having enough experts out there to address the needs of the people. So it would strike me that if I look at the data, if I look at the numbers and I look at the need, we need to create 
at specific police stations or all police stations, the availability of those kinds of resources, not necessarily in-house sitting there all the time, but with access to. Mm. Because I do think, and I must imagine that within the immediate aftermath of such an event, it's that kind of human contact in a safe environment where somebody will simply listen and be available to support you and guide you through the process that is the beginning of potentially the healing pathway because what Saray and I are talking about in terms of pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy is kind of down the line if PTSD symptoms emerge. Mm. So I'm talking about what happens in the immediate aftermath. And, and, and Saraya, to what extent does that constitute potential prevention of the development of PTSD, those kind of initial availability of resources to listen and to compassionately assist the person process what they're experiencing, what they've been through, and to walk them through this whole process, which, you know, if, if, if one thinks about the kind of forensic examination that needs to take place, it's a pretty intrusive process in its own right, these sort of swabs and the gathering of, 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 uh, of samples and, and information. So, Soraya, your, your thoughts on that kind of initial – because we, we always talk biopsychosocial, but now I'm flipping it and I'm saying I think we start with the social because maybe that is, is, is maybe a more powerful way of, of preventing what might emerge subsequently. Your thoughts on that? So that would constitute secondary prevention. Right. Uh, after the traumatic event and providing just early care and support. And so very basic psychological first aid can be uh, beneficial. Yes. Um, and can be provided by, um, you know, a relatively unskilled individual. Yes. So psychological first aid, um, you know, has really been um, tested and tried in the context of large and mass disasters, okay. uh, particularly sort of natural disasters or other man-made disasters. Um, but, you know, it is an intervention that can be provided and really um, is, as I said, very basic uh, support, providing emotional support, attending to the basic needs of the individual in the immediate aftermath of a, a traumatic event. Typically, in that period, uh, we do not um, deliver specific interventions yes. such as medications. I mean, right. they should be avoided at all costs. You should really allow for some natural recovery from yes. the traumatic event. Yes. Um, and even um, non-medication interventions such as um, trauma-focused cognitive behavior therapy or other trauma-focused interventions should not be administered right away. Um, one should actually sort of have this waiting period, waiting and monitoring period yeah. of around two to three weeks before making any decision about a more formal intervention. Yes. So I think that's really where I'm coming from. I think that in the immediate aftermath, I think what the person needs is to feel safe. They've been violated. They've been abused. And so they need to feel safe. And, and, and this idea, for example, with PTSD, that one needs to immediately debrief. I think we've got to be very careful about that because it can lead to worsening and it's not necessary to debrief because I mean the data that I've seen suggests that those who don't debrief are as psychologically healthy as those who do and I think that each individual speaks as much as they are comfortable with so we're coming to the end of our time but I have to ask the question and I don't expect an answer now but it seems to me there is something profoundly wrong with our society I mean the extent of violation is just, an, as we were saying earlier, Soraya, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of 
jaw-dropping. So we've got laws, we've got policies, we've got institutions, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's people who make up society. And what is it with our society specifically that is producing these numbers? So as I say, I, I don't expect an answer, but Gerard, your thoughts and Soraya in closing. Because I think ultimately sure. that, you know, when, <laughs> when we talk about prevention, it shouldn't be happening. Mm. That's the issue for me. So your thoughts, Gerard, and then Soraya. Yeah, I mean, as for the cause, I mean, I've worked on so many cases, and I still can't figure out why people end up doing the things they do. Um, I do know what's not helping, and that is if we don't, if they're not consequences for your behavior. Right. It just makes it easier for people to right. consider to do these things. So we need to look at the entire system. Soraya? Mm. I know it's a tough question and I don't expect you to say, well, here's the answer. Well, what I'm going to say, I think, is, um, you know, very sort of lofty um, goal. Um, But I do think we need to sort of go back to what are the primary um, drivers. And and here I think about all of the social determinants and the convergence of social determinants. Because I think if we really want to reduce trauma, and violence in particular in our context, we need to address all of the social determinants. That's much easier said than done. No, sure. Poverty, food insecurity, um, you know, lack of education, uh, lack of access to just uh, primary health care services. So I think that's very important. You've mentioned social determinants of of health and, and, and mental health. And it brings me to the issue of biopsychosocial and social psychiatry, which I think is, is, is something which maybe we've, we've lost a little bit in the pursuit of the biological. And I think when we look at these social determinants, it brings us back to, to, to that. So, Soraya and Gerard, I want to thank you for your time and expertise and, and willingness to join this conversation. It's a very difficult one, but I, I think a very important one. So in closing, you know, what words of comfort can one offer for victims that is not trite or potentially insensitive. So as a clinician, maybe I'll quote myself from an Instagram page that I have called Alice and the Prof. Well, it's Alice and the Prof. And Alice had sent me an image of, of, of hands holding each other, two hands. And my immediate response to that was from a therapeutic point of view, I can't walk in your shoes, but I can hold your hand. And that seems to echo what prominent American psychiatrist Alan Francis had to say about healing in relation to psychotherapy. It's the relationship that heals more than the technique. So I will leave you with that thought. This has been Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Remember, there is no health without mental health. And until next time, take care.